All right, so as I mentioned last Sunday, I've kind of taken a look at some of the Old Testament prophets and prophecies that we have that talk about the birth of Christ. Today I want to focus on just one short verse in Isaiah, Isaiah 7 and 14. Isaiah 7 and 14 says, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. A couple different directions we could go with that. I could talk about Emmanuel and the definition of that being God with us. Of course, that makes perfect sense, understanding that God would uh, become and take on human form and become one of us and be with us. But I really want today to focus on uh, what this is talking about when it talks about that a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. So don't talk about that for just a few minutes this morning. Of course, we see this discussed in two places in the New Testament, actually probably more than two, but two that we're going to look at today. Uh, the first is in Matthew 1, 18, and you can turn there and just leave a uh, bookmark if you have it handy. Or place your finger there. If you don't have a bookmark, come see me after. But uh, leave a marker there for Matthew 1. We'll return to that in just a minute. But what I want to do before we set the stage for this is to remind us why this is so important. Why this is not just some nice little quaint part of the story. Why this isn't something that's just added in. Um, and why there is an important aspect to be learned and discussed about the virgin birth. And to do that, we have to go back to Adam in Genesis in the garden. We remember that Adam was made perfect. He was made in the image of God and God breathed life into him and he had a soul and became a living, breathing person. And that in the garden, there was no sin. There was no death. There was no separation. In fact, Adam and Eve walked, as it seems, daily with the Lord in the evenings and would commune with God and they had uninterrupted access to God. And they could keep that as long as they were, did one thing, or I guess did not do one thing, and that was to eat of a particular tree in the garden, uh, the knowledge of good and evil. Adam chose to uh, violate that. Now we could talk for a long time about why he did that. There's probably multiple reasons behind it. We know that Eve was deceived and took an aid of the fruit, and she took it to her husband Adam. And Adam made a conscious choice to violate God's will. He took and ate as well. So on multiple levels, he was the one who was in charge. He was the one who was specifically told not to do this. And he was the one who wasn't tricked into doing it, but did it willingly. And so when he ate of the fruit, then the scriptures clearly tell us, then both their eyes were open, knowing right from wrong and realizing uh, what they had done. And at that moment, there became a separation from God that has continued on until this very day and will continue on until the end of time. Because sin came into the world and Adam was cursed because of that. They were cast out of the garden and they were set about to uh, go through life having pain and childbirth for Adam having to work the soil and the sweat of his brow to make a living. And we see this eternal separation uh, that begins because God, being holy and pure, can have nothing to do with the sin and the disobedience and the filth that we now have. And so we take on, as we sometimes will call it, this sin nature. This idea that we are born into sin and continue um, to sin. And that causes the separation that we have. 
And we saw that this sin nature, this idea that we are sinful people, that we fall short of the mark, that we do not do what God wants us to do, is passed down through birth. In fact, we see in Genesis 5 and 3 that Adam passed on this curse to the rest of the world through birth. When it says, when Adam had lived 130 years old, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. And so we see that Adam had children and these children would then inherit because of this relationship, the curse of sin. Now, I've said this multiple times, and I want to make sure that we understand this, because this is fundamental Bible, Christian, believing, understanding basics that we must have to then understand why it's important that Christ would come in the form uh, of a virgin mother. And so understanding that we are sinners, both because we are born of man, we are born guilty, we are born lost, we are born... um, fighting against God, and then we go on, and as we get older, we then choose to continue to sin. And so we have a a double curse set on us, if you will. Not only are we born sinners, and no matter how good, even if you lived a perfect life, you are still born a sinner. But none of us live a perfect life. We choose to violate God's will and God's holy commandments. And so we continue to sin by making active choices. So we have two things that are impossible for us to overcome. We are born into sin and we continue to sin. Quote a few verses. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. See, we all sin. Psalms 51 and 5 says, Behold, I was brought forth from iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now again, I want to make sure we understand, this isn't saying that the sexual act is sinful between a husband and a wife. What it is saying is that when we are born, when we are conceived, that sin nature, that sin guilt is passed to us from person to person to person to person. Psalms 58 and 3 continues, and he says, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. We start out as sinners, even as theoretically innocent little babies as we look at them. And we continue to grow and grow and do more sin. And so because of Adam's choice, because of the curse that has fallen upon them, what we can rightfully say is what the scripture clearly teaches in Romans 3.23, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, both by our actions and by our choices, but also importantly, because we were born of a man. And this sin, again, is what divides us between God. Romans 8, 7 and 8 says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And so again, just building on this idea that we have this horrible problem that all of us, because we are born, because I was born partly because of my father and he, his father, and on and on and on and on, all the way back to the very first person, Adam, who is cursed because of his sin, we are all hostile to God. And I can't just change my mind, as it were, and be good toward God. Indeed, I cannot do that because I am flesh, because I am born of sin. And so we have a very, very serious problem. We all inherit this sin. 
and we're never good enough to overcome it. So how do we reconcile to God? How can we possibly return to God to restore the relationship that was intended to be between God and us to be one where I can talk to Him and He can talk with me? To be one where I can walk in perfect fellowship and harmony with Him? How is this possibly ever get restored? That's the real question, isn't it? It's the real question we've been asking for, well, since it happened. And the reality is, if I can get off topic for just a minute, there is something, I think, embedded inside of us to understand that there is this problem and to try and find anything that can be a solution to it. And so when we look across our society today, we see many, many people who understand there's something not quite right in the world, and I'm going to try and find a solution to bridge this gap. And what ends up happening is we all begin to worship something. Whether that's ourselves, whether that's money or fame or status, whether that's a job that we have, whether that's trying to uh, save the world from the concern um, over pollution and environmentalism, whether that's trying to save the world to make sure everyone's called by the proper pronoun, whatever it is, we all find something that we try and grasp hold of to try and bridge that gap between where we are and where we have a feeling somehow inside that we need to be. And the point that I want to make very clear today is that the difficulty that we have in this world, the times that we feel set apart from the rest of it, it's not because we're not good enough simply. It is because we are the enemies of a holy God. And there is no possible way that we can ever overcome that. We can never do enough good to be good enough. As I told the kids this morning, there's never enough soap and water to wash away the sins and the wrong things that I've done because I am born this way and I am stuck in this pattern. But there is one who wasn't subject to that. And that's Jesus Christ. See, this is why we have, not just as I said at the beginning, a quaint little story. Well, isn't it nice, this little sweet young virgin girl who became a mother to a living God? No, it is absolutely necessary because Christ had to come into this world and be without sin. Not only did he choose not to commit a sin, he was born sinless because he was not born of a man. He was born of the Spirit of God and of Mary. So this is vitally important that we understand this. So turn with me, if you haven't gotten there, to Matthew chapter 1. That was a very long preamble this morning, wasn't it? Matthew chapter 1. <coughs> and here we have probably the familiar story of Christ. Matthew chapter 1. I'll begin reading with verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was this wise... When his, as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. When Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privately. But when he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. 
And she shall bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled that which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, and this was our first reading, Behold, a virgin shall be with a child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took him his wife. And he knew her not until she had brought forth their firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. And so it's so vital that we remember when we hear these verses read around Christmas time that we understand the importance behind these. Over and over again, we're told in Scripture that she is, in fact, born of a virgin. So let me just uh, hit a few of these high points here. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was this way. When his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph before they had come together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is important because what it's saying here is that they were engaged and engagements or espousalments worked a little bit differently than they do today. And I'm not going to um, cover all of that. But here was the hard and fast truth. And I want us to all hear this. In their culture, as it should be in our time, the engagement was a little bit different. They weren't shacking up together. To make that very plain. And they were not having sex before they were married either. It's going to make that very plain as well. This is very important and I think is a model that Scripture supports and should still be occurring today. So they were engaged to each other. And Joseph and Mary found out, oh, Mary's pregnant. Now Joseph, it says here, um, well, let me, let me back up. So continue verse 18, right? So before they came together, that is in fact saying before they knew each other in a physical, intimate way. So before any of that had ever occurred, she was pregnant and the pregnancy was due to the Holy Spirit coming on her just as the scripture had foretold. And when Joseph, it says he's a just man, he didn't want to make a public example of her. Now, again, we could go back and study and probably should sometime all the ways that this was occurring back in the Old Testament times and in this culture. But basically, Joseph had an opportunity to publicly call her out for being unfaithful and letting everyone in the community mock her and punish her in whatever ways they saw fit. But loving Mary is how I'm going to partially interpret this and being just, he decided he would just do it very quietly. Look, clearly, clearly she stepped out on me. Clearly, she's not devoted to me, but I'm not going to make a big deal out of it. I'm just going to very quietly, my interpretation, because I'm a nice guy, just going to call off the wedding. Send her back. Her mom and dad, let them take care of it. Seems like a reasonable thing to do, doesn't it? <clears throat> but that's not what the Lord wanted. So the Lord sent an angel. <clears throat> It says, while he thought on these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Again, we see another time that we are understanding and learning the importance of this. What is growing inside of her is not because of Joseph and is not because of any other physical man. It is because of the Holy Spirit. And it has to be that way. Otherwise, Jesus would have inherited the sin curse that Adam brought into the world. You understand? 
So it had to be supernatural, and it had to be different. Now, just for a minute, we're going to talk about Mary in a moment, but just for a minute, imagine Joseph here, right? Imagine being told this. Imagine thinking about what people are going to say when you go out to work or you're at the gate. Yeah, He's claiming God got his fiance pregnant. Imagine today if someone walked in and told you that. What would you do? You'd laugh at him. You'd make fun of him. You'd tell him that's impossible. And you know what? It is. That's the point. But Joseph was going to be faithful anyway. Why? Because God told him, don't worry about this. Don't don't have fear about this. Continue on with your plan. When the time is right, get married, and you're going to have a child, and then you can consummate the marriage in the traditional sense, and then raise your child and call him Jesus. And oh, by the way, by the way, he's going to be king. Wow. What a challenge. Joseph was obedient, and it tells us here that he woke up from his sleep. He went ahead and took her as wife, regardless of the chatter that was probably going on in the community. And it says that he knew her not until she had brought forth their first son. So Joseph was obedient to what the Lord wanted him to do. But Mary was obedient as well. Um, and we can talk about that. Well, let's look at that as well now. Turn to Luke. Luke chapter 1 as well, beginning in verse uh, 28. Luke chapter 1, verse 28. I'm thankful that we have uh, four distinct records in the gospel and at least two accounts of Christ's birth that tell us different perspectives. One truth, same truth, two slightly different perspectives here. So here we see and are concerned with Mary's account. Luke 1 verse, Luke 1, 28 says, no, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, verse 26. And in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God into the city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph, the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came unto her and said, Hail, thou art highly favored. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at this saying, and cast her mind to what manner of salutation this should be. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. And he shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest. The Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom shall be no end. Then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I have not known a man? And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Spirit shall come upon thee, and the power of the Highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also the holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. And behold, thy cousin Elizabeth, she has also conceived in her old age and is in the sixth month with her, who was called barren. For with God nothing shall be impossible. And Mary said, Behold the handmaiden of the Lord, 
Be it unto me according to thy word. And the angel departed from her. And so we see a very similar story that God comes and tells Mary what he is going to do. And he's going to do a miracle inside of her. And she's like, wait a second, I, I've, I've never been with a man. This is impossible to do. And God tells her through this angel how it in fact is going to happen, that the Holy Spirit will overshadow her and will conceive in her the king, in fact, telling us in this scripture that this is going to be the son of God. So again, try and picture yourself, a young girl engaged to be married, hopefully and probably madly in love with her future husband. And all of a sudden, an angel comes and says, hey, this isn't going to work the way you think it's going to work. And in fact, you're going to have a baby. And in fact, your baby is going to be the king of kings, is going to be God himself incarnate on this earth. What a wild day. Imagine telling that to your parents. Well, mom, here's what happened. Yeah, I don't think that would work out very well, would it? But Mary still was obedient. She was obedient. And we could go on and see some beautiful accounts. She goes to see her cousin Elizabeth. John the Baptist leaps when he hears Mary's voice. And Mary goes on and gives a beautiful account of her service to the Lord. And all of this, I do want to mention one thing real quick. And again, since we're kind of talking about doctrine today, these things are important. You will sometimes hear this called uh, the Immaculate Conception. I want to take just a minute to clear some things up because until I began to study for this, I might have called it the same thing. And I just want to make sure I draw a distinction here. This was immaculate as in there was no sin and it was a miracle. But the, the, the phrase immaculate conception as used in the Catholic Church is not referring to the same thing that we might think it is. It's actually referring to Mary. And so we see churches of the immaculate conception. It's really a church about Mary, not about Jesus' birth. In fact, I put a quote in here. The Catholic teaching from Pope Pius IX says that Mary was preserved free from all stain of original sin. So it teaches, when we talk about, when, when they're talking about the Immaculate Conception, that Mary somehow never sinned, that she, in fact, was perfect. There's no scripture to support this at all. In fact, all the scripture I read in my preamble talks about how all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That includes Mary. Now, it says Mary was highly favored, so she was probably a good girl in the purest sense but wasn't pure as in holy and wasn't without sin because she had an earthly father, which means what? She inherited the blood curse just like all of us. So I don't want to go so far to say, well, there was nothing special about Mary. Clearly there was something special about her. God chose her for a reason, but God's choosing of her helped make her special. She was not holy in and of herself. Do you understand what I'm saying? We should not worship her. We should not pray to her. And to do anything like that is entirely wrong and unbiblical. We should hold her in high esteem. Sure, she did what the Lord told her to do. But so have many, many, many other saints of God. And it should end right there. 
What is the miracle that is before us? What we should be considering as holy and amazing, what we should marvel at is that God in his foresight and in his planning knew that we would need a savior who was holy and had a way to overcome it had a way to send us someone who would also be fully God and fully man. <clears throat> so this is the important part of what we're talking about as well. John 1.14 says, For the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And so what we understand by this, what we understand from this reading is that God sent His only Son in the form of a small child to grow and to do His will. But He was not born the traditional sense in that He was born to a virgin and did not have the blood curse passed to Him. And then Christ had to grow up, and I want us to always remember this, Hebrews 10.5 tells us that He was like us in that He could be tempted to sin. It says, consequently, when Christ came into the world, I'm sorry, it's the wrong verse, uh, wrong verse in, he, in Hebrews. Hebrews, he comes in and says that he has been tempted in every way just as we are. So he came in innocent, but had an opportunity to commit sin and chose not to. He chose to obey his father's will, which is what makes him a perfect sacrifice. The other verse in Hebrews I did want to read is Hebrews 10, 5. says, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for Me. Indicating that Christ came to die for us. This is another important aspect of all this. There's so much doctrine that's so vital for us to know in this. And too many times we are taught this, which is good, as young children. And we never fully explore it or understand it or carry it forward to understand. So not only did uh, Jesus have to be born of a virgin, not only is Mary nothing to be worshipped, not only is it that we understand that Jesus Christ, when he came into this world, could have sinned, but there was no other way for us to receive forgiveness of sins if it were not for God to have come in this way. And he had to be fully God and fully human on both accounts because he had to be sinless, but he also had to be able to die. This is why he had to be born of a virgin by the Holy Spirit working in Mary's body to create Jesus Christ because he had to be human enough to what? To die for us. And he had to be human enough to be tempted as we are, yet be without sin. But he had to be holy and God enough to not be born under the curse. We understand how rich and beautiful this is and how just necessary it is for us to have a Savior as Jesus Christ. So let me try and review and bring us all back together. Our Savior had to be without sin. Thus, he could not be born of a man. Because all men are under the curse, and we pass that on to our children and our children and our children through our blood curse. 
Yet he also physically had to be a man because he had to be able to die. Because he had to be the one and the pure and the holy sacrifice for once and for all to be able to say it is finished and sit down at the right hand of God so that I can have forgiveness for my sin. So he had to be fully God and fully man. He had to come of a virgin. He had to be tested and open to sin, but living without sin. We had to have someone who was not under the curse of sin and still chose to be obedient. And that is Jesus Christ. That is why he is the one man and God that we celebrate and put our faith in today. That is why 1 Peter 1.19 says, But with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or spot. He was the final sacrifice, the only a permanent sacrifice that could be because he was perfect. It was his blood that was required. And so we must remember, in all of this, whose plan this was. It wasn't mine. It wasn't yours, nor was it thought up by the men who God used to write the scriptures. They were inspired to write what the Holy Spirit told them to write. This is not some fanciful story that was made up by a group of men saying, hey, I got this great idea. <coughs> None of us actually seek this. It is only through the gracious work of God that he and his foresight knew that we would need a savior and sent his son in this form in a perfect way without the sin guilt of blood. And then he had a son who was obedient to him to always do the right thing and to never do the wrong thing. And then was willing in that obedience to give up his life, being fully man and fully God, able to be killed and murdered for my sin and for yours. We do not seek God. God sought us. That's why the scripture tells us from the foundation of the world, when everything was set in place, God knew that we would need a savior. And Jesus Christ was there waiting until it was the right time to be sent to become a little tiny human baby. To be born and to live like us, which means, you know what? I'm going to make some assumptions here. I think he got sick physically. And threw up. And Mary had to rock him at night. I think he stubbed his toe. And probably wanted to curse. I think he got tired. I think he got worn out. I think, young ones, he didn't always want to do what his mom and dad told him to do. But he did it anyway. I think he probably got frustrated knowing at a very young age when he was left behind at the temple and he was teaching the wisest men in all the world, but he had to do what? He had to wait. Boy, don't we hate that. He had to see the horrible things that went on in this world. He had to do all the things that we have to do in our lives and yet did not sin. And then, 
To top all this off, he had to be falsely accused. He had to be betrayed by those that he loved. He had to be beaten literally within a barely inch of his life. He had to be hung up on the tree. And then the worst thing possible, God had to take all sin that has ever been committed and all wrong and impurity that ever will be committed and put it on his son and then look away and crush his son and his righteous anger for the things that I did and the things that you did. And for the first time in history ever, ever, God looked away and turned away from his son. And Jesus Christ knew what we know every single day, which is what it's like to be separated from God. And that is why he cried out in anguish, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he finally experienced what you and I were born knowing, what it's like to not be with God. And it had to happen that way. And I didn't come up with some plan to save myself or to save you. God in His infinite love and graciousness toward us developed this plan and was willing to crush and crucify His Son on my behalf so that He could have me back after I chose to leave. What an amazing God. I kept coming back to this verse when I was preparing for this psalm. 118, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And here's the part that I kept rolling again over and over in my mind. This is from the Lord and it is marvelous in our eyes. It is marvelous in our eyes. When we stop and think about why this happened, why it's important, how it happened, the plan that God had from the foundations of the world to come and to rescue me, the fact that he was willing to do all of this just For me and just for you, it is marvelous in my eyes. It should be marvelous in ours. When we hear the Christmas story at this time of year, when we consider these things and we see all the reminders that Christ came, is it marvelous in our eyes? Or is it just another Christmas? Or is it just, for many of the world, just a nice story? Something we talk about this time of year that we don't really understand. It was this manifestation, the love of God toward us, that God sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. So because God did it this way, because He sent His Son through a virgin, bypassing the sin curse that we deserved, Because his son grew up and was obedient to God, even to the point of death, and because God was willing to kill his son on our behalf so that we could have a sacrifice and be reunited with him, that we might live through him. And so we really ought to ask ourselves, is the virgin birth marvelous in our eyes? Is the sacrifice marvelous? Marvelous in our eyes. Do we stop and consider what Christ has done for us? Brothers and sisters, we ought to. Because if I try to come up with a plan, well, first of all, I never would have. Because I never would have seen the need. So I talked about recently when you're blind. If you're blind, you've never seen. You don't have any idea. You don't know that you need to see. It's like if I was to tell you there was some sixth sense that I didn't know about. Well, you don't know about it because you don't know that you need it. 
We didn't know that we needed a Savior. But God knew, and in His grace, He provided a way out. And it was a personal way out. It should be and ought to be marvelous in our eyes. And for those of us who've been saved, it is marvelous. Let me go back to that verse in Psalms. The second half says, This is from the Lord, and it's marvelous in our eyes. But the first half says, The stone the builders rejected has become a cornerstone. See, the reality is this. The application, if you will, of Christ's blood and salvation to our lives is not automatic. You must put your faith in Him. You must repent of your sins. You must seek the salvation that He wants to give you. And when you have done that, God will apply that blood to your life. But until then, you're simply rejecting the greatest gift that God has ever given. In another scripture, when it talks about this cornerstone, it says you're going to trip over it and you'll be crushed by it. See, the reality is very clear. God did this because he loves us. But if you don't put your faith in him, if you don't repent of your sins, if you don't seek him out, then the very same thing that saved me will rightfully and justifiably crush you for all time. And so there's my challenge today. Is it marvelous in your eyes? Or are you tripping over the very thing that's going to save you? And for those who've been here for any amount of time, which is a lot of you, you've heard me say things like this over and over again. And there is no excuse. And you can keep tripping and keep falling over the cornerstone that's Jesus Christ, over the rock that you think's in your way, but eventually it will crush you for all times and it will never be marvelous in your sight.